0: Um, I want to ask you this morning to maybe take a, a slightly different posture to what you ordinarily would uh, in one of our services. Um, I'm very aware that, that obviously we, uh, you know, we place a lot of emphasis on teaching and we want to um, understand and receive information, etc. And so there, there is a chunk of that, but, but more than just receiving information, I'm going to invite you uh, a few times throughout this message to actually reflect to actually um, think about a an idea, or to ask yourself a particular question, just as by means of example, Taddy, can I ask you just to put up the, the scripture again that uh, Rayser used for for the uh, for the offering? I just I just want to use this as, as a very simple example of how sometimes less is more, right? So I don't know about you, I mean, when when I first saw this in the first service, um, it really just struck me as I just kept thinking over and over again that we get to offer our sacrifices. But think about the fact that we're invited to do this in the right spirit, like it matters. So our why really matters. This isn't a legalistic thing. This isn't a have to, the right spirit. And then think about actually reflecting on the idea of trusting the Lord. For me, there are like three key sort of parts to this passage. We, we're invited to offer our sacrifices. We are encouraged to do with the right spirit. And then we are reminded to trust the Lord. It's a sacrifice. In the right spirit, we trust the Lord. There's a sacrifice, it's done for the right reasons. We trust the Lord. Now sometimes those are just words on a page and sometimes like is recorded in, I think it's first Timothy 3.16 or 2nd Timothy 3.16, it's breath on a page. Like there's, there's like it comes alive, you become aware of I can trust God. I can I can allow him to move me to having the right motive. I can do what I'm supposed to do, and I can trust God. I'm wanting to encourage you to reflect as we take a look at the next installment on this small series on this very small book in the New Testament called Galatians. Sue did a great job, sincerely, last week of, of um, introducing and overviewing this letter. And I've got to say, there were quite a few things that actually stood out to me. One of them was how, how quickly Paul got into the business, like he, how, how he didn't waste time uh, with, with too many, you know, uh, courtesies. He was so burdened. So burdened. and I think if we can understand this this heart and the why behind his burden, I think, I think, I think we might recognize that there's something that God is trying to bring to our attention. Two thousand years later, the bottom tip of Africa. It's amazing how the word of God is relevant and applicable no matter where you are in the world, if there is if there if there's air in your lungs. I want to read quickly from chapter one, verse six, where Paul again he's you, you kind of. He, This is where he's getting down to the point. He says, I'm shocked that you are turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but it is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Keep that up for a sec, guys. I want you to read that again. And as we read it, I wanna remind you that Paul is writing to a group of people that, that he has already shared the gospel with, and I'll unpack what the gospel is in a moment. He's already shared the good news. People have, have, have come to accept this message of Christ and what he did at the cross. Just, It's important that we have context in this particular case. It's to these people. I mean, he could be writing this to any church in the world today, in 2024. I am shocked, I mean, potentially. I'm not saying that this would be accurate or true, but He could be writing this to any of us. I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. The scripture will be up any second, I'm sure, on the side screens as well. Thank you, guys. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but it's not the good news at all. It has struck me how Paul is not worried that these believers are going to be drawn away by all kinds of temptation and immorality and all kinds of stuff that, that, that would compete for, you know, f- for something good. Paul's concern here, and I, we cannot miss this, is that these Christians are being distracted. They are being tempted away by religiosity. They are being tempted away from the truth of the gospel by something that seems really good and noble. Clearly, this is impacting you less than it's impacting me. He's not saying, you know, don't, don't kill people, don't be distracted by, you know, sex and, and all kinds of, you know, stuff that, that's like naughty, you know, not that sex is naughty, but, you know, illicit sex, etc. cetera, blah, blah, blah. He's, not, he's not saying don't deal drugs. He's not saying, you know, don't defraud people. He's saying, he, he is warning them against people that are trying to distract them from the true gospel by people that are trying to bring really good alternatives into place. Religiosity. Sue made repeated mention last week of circumcision. I don't know why the guys are getting picked on. I mean, besides the fact that that, that this is in the book of Galatians, and this was part of the Old Testament law, and, and some of us have been reading through the Bible in a so we've been spending a few days in the book of Leviticus, which is just hectic, and I think it leaves many of us grateful that we're not having to still worry about all these food laws and, and all kinds of other stuff that I'm not even comfortable sharing from the stage. Like, there's a lot. There, there's... There is a lot that goes into the the law of Moses. And effectively, what these guys were trying to do was convince these Christians that they had to first become indoctrinated into the Old Testament religion of Judaism. Now, before I explain how I think that's incredibly relevant to us, I want to point out, regardless of where you are in your journey with God, I'm so aware that in a that in a group this size, in fact, pretty much of any size, every one of us would be at a different place in our journey with God. Even if you're not sure about God, even if you're not sure about whether or not you're following Jesus, whether or not you're you're not too sure what it is that you believe about Jesus. I want to just for a moment talk about this idea of the gospel, which is which is also another way of saying the good news. The good news is another phrase for the term gospel. The gospel is basically a way of being saved. Now stick with me because I believe that everybody has a gospel. They might not call it that. That might sound like religious language, but everybody has a gospel. Everybody has a a set of good news that they think will lead them to the good life. Think about the, the results that we want from the gospel, the results that we want from salvation. We want a form of emotional and mental and often physical healing. We want a sense of peace. We want a sense of fulfillment. We want a sense of meaning. We want a sense of belonging. We want a sense of identity. We want the good life. I promise you, you will not find a living, breathing person that does not have a gospel. It's just in many cases, it's not defined and it's not articulated. But in many cases... In many cases, we, we would look to goals and achievements, and, and it, might, it might be educational stuff, it might be career goals, that, that we're hoping will bring us peace, fulfillment, meaning, identity. We might wanna be attractive, which, which, which isn't actually about being attractive, it's about being wanted. We want to be wanted. There's something in the human soul that wants to belong, that wants to be wanted. So maybe if, fill in the blank, I'll be wanted. And, and we can be distracted from, from it actually mattering who it is that wants us to just, will people just want me? There's something in us that wants to be wanted. Our reputation, the way that we view our family or friends, um, our, our deep desire to provide for our family can be a form of gospel if I can just secure my family's future, if I can just secure you know, enough medical coverage or enough you know, savings or, or reserves. Now, now, there's nothing wrong with, with any of these things in and of themselves as when we are looking to them as the ultimate thing, when we are thinking that that will bring ultimate security. If I can have that in place, I'll have peace. I'll have security. I think things will mostly be right with the world some of you have lived long enough to know that a lot of those things that I've just mentioned, if they become the ultimate thing, they overpromise and they under-deliver. I, I've been around lots of people in this context for many, many years, and I've seen, I've seen when the things that people place their hope and faith in are not enough when the storms come. When things don't work out the way that you would hope that it would work out. I've been noticing lately, I mean, I've, I saw this in my own life and I've been noticing this in a surprising number of people that, that I have interaction with, whether they are pastors, whether it's people in our church, um, just, just interesting conversations where I'm noticing a trend which I, think, which, which I think is more common than what we realize of people in their late 30s in their early 40s, it's not, it's not limited to that, but especially people at this phase of their lives, late 30s, early 40s, where they are coming to a place where they're feeling like, is this it? Is this it? They've hustled, they've worked hard perhaps, maybe, maybe they've got an education they want, maybe they didn't, maybe they got the job they want, maybe they didn't, but, 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 but all those things that they hoped would bring peace and fulfillment and purpose and identity they, they're coming to a place where they're saying, is this it? Is this as good as it gets? I think that, that there are people that, and this is a healthy, th- please don't see what I'm saying as a negative. I actually think that it's a beautiful, kind invitation from God, which I'll unpack in a moment. Yeah. I'm seeing people in their spiritual life where, where, they've, where they've tried to apply um, many of the, 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 the spiritual principles and practices, almost as though it's a formula, and got into a place in their lives where they're like, is this it? because I still expect there to be something deeper. I still expect the joy to be deeper, uh, to be more resilient. I expect the peace to be less attached to circumstances. I, I expect to be more secure, uh, more differentiated. Soon I chatted with, with someone earlier this week who I'm guessing is in his early or mid 60s at the moment. And he was talking about how when he started his church, uh, he, had, he had this he had these dreams, these goals of how he wanted to own his own house, Basically, graduate with a doctorate and grow their church to a thousand people, serve a thousand people in the church. And when he hit, and I think the goal was about 40. So he hit 40, got the house, in his words, got the nice car, got the doctorate, the church is of 5,000 people, and he was burnt out. Basically, like dying on the inside. And how that led him to a journey, to an investigation, of 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 trying to press in deeper beyond some of the peripheral, superficial stuff that, that we think, you know, if we can just if we can just tick these boxes, we can control God, we can control our formation, we can control our lives, we can control our journey and and A plus B will equal C. And and so that's a guy in a in a pastoring context, there are many people that whether it's business, whether it's whether it's education, career, whatever, family, you you, you might have had, you know, you might have had the spouse and two and a half kids and you've got your house and you're like Is this it? No. And 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 it might be that nothing's wrong. Like in this guy's case, he was saying everything was right on the outside. Everything was right on the outside. And so I'm saying regardless of your context, whether you are trying to pursue your own gospel among, uh, trying to pursue what, what feels like righteous paths, or trying to pursue your own gospel through just just hustling, making, you know, building the life you want, we need to come back to the true gospel, to the, to the gospel that is actually the gospel of grace. And why that is such a a powerful word and a polarizing word because it actually polarizes people even, even within Christianity because there's so much fear that, that grace will be abused and for good reason. I get it and I, and I agree. But my, my rebuttal to that is if we truly understand grace, we will never want to abuse it. Grace in its essence is to receive more than we deserve. Paul is saying, you guys have received more than you could ever deserve. You accepted this. You've experienced this freedom. Freedom. Why would you be going back? Why would you be trying to to tick other religious boxes in order to now feel justified before God? In order to feel worthy before God, in order to feel loved by God. Paul, I think if he was, I think if Paul was preaching today, he'd be saying, Are you out of your minds? You are loved. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less. You are loved. There's nothing that you can add to the cross. You cannot earn your way to being loved. This is the capital G good, capital N news. You cannot add to it. You can only respond to it. You cannot add to it. You can only respond to it. And I I think one of the key signs of recognizing the grace of God in our lives is gratitude. If you are a follower of Jesus, the question is not on the screen. Is When's the last time you were just grateful? Just a sense of God, you are kind. God, you are good. Maybe it was in worship today. Yes, like I felt grateful in worship. Just God, you are worthy of it all. When we actually see the grace for what it is, I think one of the instinctive reactions will be gratitude. Paul kind of touches on this briefly. He doesn't unpack it in a theological thesis because he's already done this with these particular readers, but he makes brief reference. Like he reminds them in Galatians 2 verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. He's saying there's something spiritual that took place when I accepted what he did for me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I will live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying, this is all about salvation. I'm not talking about, it. I'll come to our response. There's an appropriate response. Don't panic. Those of you that are, what is this? Just, do we just do whatever we want to? No, 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 there's, there's no, an, there's an appropriate response. But there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. Salvation, by the way, means healing, wholeness, to be set free. The word that is translated as salvation or saved in the New Testament is the same word used when referring to Jesus having healed someone, Jesus having rescued someone, for someone to be rescued from slavery. It's the same word. So, so to be set free, salvation is to be set free, to be healed over time, to be made whole over time. And, and we can medicate in our own strength, we can distract in our own strength, but we cannot ultimately save ourselves. And we cannot save ourselves anymore by the good things that we do. The good things that we do should only be in response to the true gospel, the gospel of grace. In chapter 4, verse 5, it won't be on the screen. It says that this is Paul writing that God sent Jesus to buy our freedom. That's why the key verse, chapter 5, verse 1, is about now that you've been set free, live in freedom. I understand that many of you are still waiting for the punchline. Hang in there, hang in there, hang in there, hang in there. Chapter 2, verse 21 says, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. Just pause for a moment. You can keep it up on the screen. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. I think Paul is writing this in the context of people that feel like the cross wasn't enough, and so they have to add good things. They have to add righteous things. And if we're doing that, if we think that that's how we make ourselves acceptable to God, if that's how we make ourselves worthy of His love, then I think Paul would say we're making the grace of God meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. And for what it's worth, just side note, this, this has always been the part I can't get past when having conversations with people and, 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 and there's compassion, there's there's empathy. I, 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 I recognize that people are on a journey. They are searching. But when people make reference to, to all religions ultimately serving the same God, to all, to all roads kind of leading to Rome, to in my, in my opinion, that is, that is people thinking that we can somehow be good enough, kind enough, loving enough, worthy enough that, that we can all you know, spend eternity with God. What I cannot get past is then why did Jesus need to die? then there was no need for Christ to die. If it, was just, if it was just us trying to be good, if it was just us trying to be moral. And I love how the late Timothy Kelly even describes that attempt to be good enough, where he says that, 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 that if you had like a recording device, even if you don't agree with the biblical sort of value system, moral system, the Old Testament law, he says, even if you just had your own philosophy, your own way of doing life, your own way to salvation, if you kept a recording device around your neck you would find very quickly that you can't attain, you you cannot maintain even your own standard. His point being that we all fall short. And so then the question is who redeems us? Like how do we, how does that, how does that get paid for? How do we, how do, how are we reconciled if if our best efforts are not good enough? Paul would say it's the cross of Christ. It's him dying for us. I mean, raised back to life for us, something spiritual. It's irrational. It doesn't make full sense to us, although I think there's a strong argument around the logic. But, but Jesus broke something spiritually when he died as the perfect substitute for us. Paul's saying, why would you add stuff to that? Billy, the late Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian Jivirgin, should have stuck with Graham, wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And the whole idea is, and again, this is relating to the gospel, getting to our response. Obviously, the point he's making is that we can't add anything to the gospel. Now, we we can be involved in positioning ourselves to mature in our relation with God, in our walking with Him. We can position and place ourselves to to experience the benefits, the promises that, that God actually has for us, but... They are a response. They are a response. So here's a question for you. What are you tempted to add to the cross? What are you tempted to add to the cross? Chapter three, verse three, Paul says, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, capital S Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human efforts? So this is even after salvation. Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? Now I've got to ask myself, was it so hard for these Judaizers that Sue mentioned last week? Was it, was it so hard for them to accept this gospel because it just sounded too easy. It just sounded too cheap. And, and by the way, I actually have a lot of compassion for where they're coming from. If you read through the law of Moses, it's hectic. What do you mean we won't be stoned or killed if we don't, you know, honor the Sabbath? What do you mean we'll be okay if we eat stuff that like we were told we couldn't eat? Think about it. If, that's, if, that is, if that has been hundreds of years' worth of generations, I, I can understand why it would be hard for them to accept something that seems too easy, too good to be true, too cheap. And so I'm very aware that in our context, for most of us, the temptation towards self-righteousness is not going to involve circumcision and food laws or how we clean our clothing, or whether or not we allow mold to grow in our homes. But is it possible that we could be tempted to add to the gospel with things like tithing? Serving. Prayer. Scripture reading. Baptism. communion, a commitment to justice, a rhythm of fasting, practicing Sabbath. I think that for people in our church, in our community, that if there were to be a temptation, if there were to be a distraction from what the gospel actually means for us, I think it might be a lot closer to those things and not around food laws and some of the other stuff that we just don't relate to. So what I mean is, and I've just highlighted a whole bunch of stuff that we value. These are things that we invite you to participate in. These are things that I believe are best practices for people that wanna grow in a relationship with God. They are good things. But again, the late Timothy Keller makes reference to us turning good things into damnable good things. He's making reference to the older brother in the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, where where the younger brother broke off his relationship with his father because of rebellion. The older brother separated his relationship from his father through his own self-righteousness. And his self-righteousness made him so angry that his father would dare honor his younger brother who had squandered so much. He could not get his head around it. And so actually the story ends with the younger brother, the rebel brother being restored and redeemed and the older brother being separated. If you know the story, he never came back. He didn't come inside. His father ghost him, which, which, was, which was indignant. It was disrespectful in that culture for the father to have to go out and fetch the son and the son doesn't come back in. There was an anger Maybe you can understand and relate to this anger that can well up in you when you are doing what you think you're supposed to do and you're not getting what you're asking God to give you. And so we have this facade, we we have this illusion that we can control God as opposed to coming back to the gospel that the kindest person that we will ever meet was generous on a level that no one can ever compare. Paying a price that some people think is too cheap, but actually cost Jesus everything. And it wasn't easy for him. Don't think for a second that it was easy for Jesus. It is the only time that I can think of that we read in scripture that Jesus asked for plan B. It's the only time that I can think of. And not once, not twice, three times. He he goes by himself and he's, He's asked, he's asked his disciples to stay awake and pray. And he is so stressed out by what he is about to face that he is that his blood corpuscles are literally bursting, and he is sweating drops of blood. And he's saying, "Father, if there's another way, if you can take this cup of wrath from me, he was he knew that he was about to experience the justice of everything that had been collected for millennia and would come for thousands of years later. He was about to experience." the consequence of our sin, he was about to be separated from his father for the first time in eternity, and he was shook. It was not cheap. Let's not make the gospel meaningless. Let's not make the cross of Christ meaningless. We cannot add to it so Do I think that it is healthy for us to to grow in our practices around tithing, serving, praying, scripture reading, baptism, communion, justice, fasting, Sabbath? Absolutely. But the why really matters. We are deceived if we think that that can earn us our way to the Father. If we think that that can somehow make us worthy. And I have to say, as a father... There have been so many times over the years where I've just thought, yes, man, if my daughters came to me like I've so often come to God, I would be I'd be a little bit hurt. I'd be like, Do you think I'm a monster? Why are you so afraid? Or why are you so why are you groveling? When we experience the love of God, yes, we're humbled. It melts our heart, it doesn't harden our hearts. It stirs up a sense of gratitude. I believe it stirs up a sense of confidence in God. And I believe that it actually moves us to wanting to please Him, wanting to obey Him more and more. Right now, I'm in a season where, where there's a particular practice that I'm that I'm feeling. Prompted and stirred and invited to give more time and attention to. And I have to keep reminding myself, this isn't this isn't to get a like a like, like a report card. This isn't to be more impressive. This isn't this isn't to make God love me more. He, he cannot love me more. This is for me to be more present with Him. This is for me to be. This is for me to to experience more of His love, and it's it's for me to align my, my thinking with His thinking better and to align my will with His will better. But it is all a response. The book of Galatians is written to a group of people who were not being distracted by all kinds of, you know, hectic partying, let's go to Vegas type of stuff. It is written to a group of people who were being distracted and fooled by religion. So why do we serve? Because we're grateful. Why do we give? Because we believe God first gave to us and He's our provider. Why do we fast? Because we actually want to remove some of the distractions and stimulation of our physical appetite so that maybe something in our spiritual appetite will actually develop more. Why, why would we pray and practice silence and solitude? Because we want to position ourselves to be with God, to gaze upon Him, to, to, to hear Him. We are invited to travel light. I feel sorry for people that were in my church. Uh, By my, I mean like I was, you know, where I was primarily like leading and teaching in the early years, because I don't think that I communicated sufficiently what Jesus describes in Matthew eleven. Verse 28 to 30, about the easy yoke and the light burden. It was a heavy burden and it was a difficult yoke. And so I I can't convince you. I can just tell you that this is what Jesus says and then He invites us. He's not going to love you anymore. If you do, he's not going to love you any less if you don't. But he says, Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Let me teach you, for I am humble and gentle. I don't know that that would describe how many people, how many Christians have you got. And I will give you rest. Walk with me. Let me lead you. And I will give you rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I it is so it is so ironic that Paul is 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 almost like he comes across aggressive, but I don't think he's aggressive in like a heavy, ugly way. He's like, No, don't let these people rob you. Wait, wait, you've been invited to freedom. Jesus has removed, he's lifted this, this unbearable weight. Why would you let someone put the weight back on you again? We are invited to travel light. To accept that we cannot earn salvation. But that we are invited to enjoy the freedom. Which is God's way of giving us, offering us love and life. And it is the freedom that Jesus paid the highest price for. The highest price. And so, our only appropriate. I think. I think the only thing that that should be expected from us, when it comes to staying free, is to prioritize response, not religion. That might sound subtle. That might sound like ah, it's a plain words. No, no, no. It's not. Religion is all about earning. Religion is all about what I do. Response is about everything that He's done, and I'm just and 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 I'm make no mistake i'm taking responsibility to respond i'm not i am not i'm not a helpless uh, passenger in this journey no no i i do get to respond i get to i get to obey i get to position myself again if we if we understand the spiritual practices for what they are they are not the, they are not the goal you fasting or tithing or serving or building relationships or, or being generous, they are not the goal. They are a means to the real end, which is life in God. It's being loved by Him, loving Him back, walking with Him, walking in the good works that He's prepared for us long in advance. It is response, not religion. So I'm going to ask... Kelly to come on up, and while she's doing that, if you reach underneath your chair, you're going to find a little cup that's got some juice in it, and if you take a look at the tiny, thin leaflet at the top, you'll see that they actually separate, and there's a little wafer in there. You do not have to take part in this, but for those of you that want to, this is something that is referred to as communion or breaking of bread, and in a few moments, I'm going to invite you to commune with God. And I want to ask you one particular question. I want to come back to one particular question. What are you tempted to add to the cross? What might you be tempted to add to the cross? Where might you be tempted to to struggle to accept that what Jesus did for us really is enough for salvation. We cannot make Him love us more. We cannot make Him love us less. Everything else is a response. And where we position ourselves to obey, we position ourselves to grow, we position ourselves to mature, we position ourselves to live out His purposes. But we're not making anything else the ultimate thing. We're not making our family the ultimate thing. We're not making achievements the ultimate thing. We're not making the church the ultimate thing. We're making Jesus. We're making the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit relationship with God the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is, God, I'm surrendered. My answer is yes. What's the question? So, as you participate in eating that little wafer, in drinking that juice, we are reminded the Bible tells us, of Jesus' body that was broken for us, the price he paid, Jesus' blood that was shed for us, the price he paid to purchase freedom, healing, to actually set us free from the spiritual bondage that meant that we couldn't break free from addictive patterns and destructive patterns that are out of our control. No, No, spiritually, he has set us free from it. What might you be tempted to add to the cross of Jesus? And our only appropriate response, I think, if we are aware of something, is to repent, is to notice and to repent. And for others, it's just, God, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful. What's next? For those of you that are, for those of you that feel like you're talking to God already, please, you just carry on. For others for whom the idea of just being quiet is really quite unpleasant or uncomfortable or intimidating, I get that. I remember very clearly the first time I just tried to be quiet and not use words and not not do the work of praying, not do the work of interceding, not do the work of trying to please or impress God. So I can only encourage you with something practical like And this is just an this is just an invitation. This is an encouragement. with your eyes closed and maybe maybe if you're comfortable doing this your hands open on your lap but I do want to ask that no one looks around for a moment my encouragement to you is to try and imagine God looking at you with love to look at God looking at you with love now I imagine that if you're anything like me in terms of my personality and just the way I think first time I would have tried to do that there's a good chance that there's an immediate instinctive reaction that's like, yeah, that's fine, but but there's like a but. Okay, but Jason, what about? Or Okay, but God, what about? As you are quickly reminded of something that you think you need to first resolve, of something you think you need to get out of the way, of something you think you need to first confess. Now, Now, there's a place for confession. There's a f- place for repentance. There's a place for resolving. What I'm asking you to do is before any of that to actually look at God looking at you with love. To dare to believe that the look on his face is actually one of love. Scripture records Jesus looking at the person on the cross next to him with love. There was a compassion. There was an empathy. And by the way, I don't think he only looked at the one person next to him with love. I think he would have looked at both, including the one who was mocking him. Tells us that he looked at the person who was quite literally executing him. He looked at him with love. He prayed for him. He prayed for his executioner while he was executing him. Father, forgive him. He looked at Peter with love after he denied him three times after, just shortly before that, promising that he'd be willing to die for him. He looked at him with love. I think he would have looked at Judas with love. I can tell you for sure that he looked at a woman dragged in front of him publicly, naked with probably, hopefully, like something wrapped around her, but, but in the most vulnerable, shamed, social way possible. And he looked at her with love. He met with a lady from Samaria at a well in the middle of the day when even though she came from what was considered a social outcast community, even in the outcast community, she was an outcast because of her lifestyle. And so she's at this well in the middle of the day when it's the hottest, when no one else will be around because she was so ostracized. And Jesus looked at her with love. In fact, she was the first person that he revealed himself and and, he's, and the fact that he was the Messiah, she was the first person that he revealed that to. He looks at you with love. I think before the correction, before the invitation, before the instruction, I think he looks at you with love. And the more that we can look at God looking at us with love, the more I believe we will respond with Gratitude, with love, with obedience, with, with caring about the things that he cares about. I think, I think that, that the highs and the lows will have less of a dramatic effect on us. We'll, we, can, we can celebrate the celebrations and we can process the grief. We can, we can handle the successes and the failures. We can love people with fewer strings attached. We can be generous with fewer strings attached. We can serve not because we're gonna see an immediate return on the people that we're serving. We can serve because he first served us. When we look at God looking at us with love, it actually starts to change everything. Let's not add anything to the cross. Let's be very discerning as to whether or not we're adding to the, capital G, gospel or whether we are accepting the gospel of grace. And my encouragement to you is over the next week to maybe create some space to just slow down and be present with God where you don't fill it with a whole bunch of stuff. But where maybe you just sit still for a few minutes, maybe five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, and you just just try and sit with this truth that God loves you. Don't try to manage the outcomes. Give up the illusion of control. Just position yourself to be loved by God and to love Him back.